Welcome to Have You Ever Wondered? A series of podcasts for facing life's challenges. Hi, my name's Rob Stuckey, and I'm here to share with you some insights I've gleaned from living in many cultures and facing a wide array of life's challenges. Among other things, I've been a teacher, an artist, an interpreter, a public speaker, a clergyman, and a writer on five continents and in multiple languages. I earned degrees in art and theology from Yale University, lived and studied under the direct tutelage of a Hindu guru for nearly 10 years, was an Episcopal priest for 16 years, and have worked with the Muslim community in bridge building for decades. I was also a medical interpreter and cultural competency advocate at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore for 10 years. I was married to a woman from a Jewish family for 26 years, and since 2005, have been married to a woman from a Spanish Catholic family. At this point, I'm no longer affiliated with any particular institution. I prefer to focus on the commonalities that unite us rather than on the institutional justification or promotion of our differences. My life experience has taught me a lot, and it's fed a lifelong enjoyment of sharing what I learn with anyone interested in the hopes they might find something useful in it for their own life's journey. I don't claim any absolute authority other than that of my own experience, nor do I pretend to offer you solutions to your problems. That's something for you to figure out for yourself. The views expressed in this podcast are unapologetically my own. I just hope they may be useful to you in your own exploration and process. So here we go. Welcome to my podcast. Have you ever wondered, do our notions of exceptionalism make us culturally incompetent? For all the recent political bluster about America first and the hype of patriotism and American exceptionalism, it's more than a little ironic that the loudest voices proclaiming our American excellence often come from people who are fundamentally anti-intellectual and both historically and culturally myopic, if not utterly ignorant. The result has been a precipitous drop in our national standing in education and a steady proportional increase in our social polarization. This is dangerous and it's a bad omen for our future. There's a basic practice of what has become known as cultural competence. The French called it savoir-faire, knowing how to do things smoothly in a variety of social and international environments. It's become an almost a lost art. But the skill inherently derived from understanding cultures, customs, and beliefs other than our own is of greater importance now than ever in a shrinking world. Climate change, ethnic violence, economic disparities are all made worse by our ignorance and misperception of others. Misreading the signals or misunderstanding another's perspective can have catastrophic results on the level of personal, communal, or even international relations. Sometimes, however, a change of perspective can be a real game changer. I'm reminded of a wonderful movie, The Dead Poet Society. The maverick teacher in a stuffy boys prep school, played by Robin Williams, has his students rip out the pages of their textbook's pedantic introduction. And then 
He has them stand on their desks and describe the classroom from their new perspective. The students are astounded to discover details about the classroom where they had sat countless times as if they were in an entirely new and different room. This experience opened them to the joys of experiential learning rather than the traditional rote learning they'd come to expect. Their entire outlook on life changed for the better. Coming to a deeper and more experiential understanding of other people and cultures usually results in a major shift of perspective and attitude towards them. This is urgently needed in a world where political agendas unfairly distort our perceptions and are often fed by religious biases that insist upon the moral superiority of a particular group of believers to the exclusion of all others. <clears throat> it's ironic that religious folks often insist on the omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence of their God in one breath, and then in the next breath promptly proceed to ignore or exclude that presence from anyone and everyone who doesn't immediately agree with them. To say there's only one God, but my God is better than your God is, of course, an oxymoron. But it's a popular one that has shaped a lot of the religious history of the world. All the founders of the great religions specifically preached a message of inclusion, which explains a lot of their popularity and their rapid growth beyond their cultural of origin in a world full of divisions of class, gender, and ethnicity. So it's more than sad that so many who claim to have faith and devotion to those saints and sages routinely ignore the responsibilities that such faith demands toward their fellow human beings and even toward our Mother Earth. So how can we change this dynamic? One important step in the right direction is to make a shift from a them or us dynamic of differentiation and opposition to a them and us dynamic of inclusion and mutuality. As the great Indian sage Ramana Maharshi put it succinctly, there is no other. We're all inextricably interconnected. Consider how often we look at another person and without even realizing it, we make assumptions or judgments about that person simply by their appearance or by the way they speak. Wearing a suit and tie, a polo shirt and blue jeans, a turban, a sari, or a baya, we quickly assume something about that person. Likewise, the skin tone of another is all too often a trigger for assumptions that are often totally erroneous. Now imagine sitting in silence in a room with 10 people of different nationalities, but all dressed in the same culturally ambiguous clothing. Do we make the same assumptions about them? or wearing a blindfold, being introduced to the same 10 people and having no idea of their skin tone. Now imagine being verbally introduced and hearing each one respond in their own language. Could you tell with certainty their social status or educational background? And if they all spoke English, would you make different assumptions about those whose pronunciation was like yours? as opposed to those who spoke with some sort of accent, whether foreign or regional? The reality is we're all socially conditioned by our upbringing and life experience to see others in specific ways. 
Our biases are often unconscious, as the standards by which we judge others form a part of whatever is normal for us and become integral to our own self-identity. They're rarely intentionally and consciously prejudiced. Some deeply biased people will respond with horror and genuine outrage at any suggestion they might be bigoted, simply because their biases have been so totally normalized by their society, they've become unconscious, unquestioned, and automatic assumptions. Our assumptions then color our attitudes and may discourage or even prevent us from seeing others as they truly are. Years ago, I heard a story about the porter of a Benedictine monastery. His job was to answer the door anytime someone knocked, day or night, and to welcome whoever had come with the hospitality of the monastery. Some might have taken such a task as a tedious annoyance, especially if the knocking disturbed their sleep at night. But this monk considered it his spiritual practice and duty to run to the door joyfully as if to open the door to Christ himself. Imagine what the world would be like if we all saw God in each other like that, even in those who annoyed or inconvenienced us. What is it that's most likely to change our entrenched attitudes towards someone we perceive as the other? The Best of Enemies a recent movie based on real life events during the American Civil Rights Movement in the early 70s, powerfully acknowledged the mutual hatred between blacks and whites in the American South of the time. In an extraordinary effort to shift the dynamic and seek justice for persecuted blacks and integrate the public schools, a group of citizens in equal numbers of both blacks and whites committed to participating for 10 days in an all-day intensive workshop that, among other things, required them to eat with those of the opposite ethnicity. The two most outspoken and mutually loathing participants were a black woman activist and a white male, the president of the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan, who happened to have a severely autistic son in a state-run asylum. The two ended up recognizing their shared pain as a common bond. She in the injustice of misogynistic white prejudice against poor single mothers. And he in the injustice of prejudice against the disabled. This opened their eyes to each other's humanity and to their mutual desire to change a system that routinely and unjustly ignored that humanity to no fault of their own. He woke up to his own biases and renounced his membership in the KKK. And she learned to see him as a man and a loving father concerned for his son rather than the personification of evil. The two became lifelong friends, traveling the country to speak to communities all over the nation on the transformative, life-changing power of forgiveness and the humanizing importance of giving a name and a face to the other. The reality is we're all prone to conditioning, to peer pressure, and to a certain narcissistic assumption that our norms, whatever they may be, are the standard by which others should be judged. As long as we live in isolation from the other, 
Those assumptions run on automatic pilot. They go unchallenged and generally unexamined until life confronts us with an alternative possibility. At that pivotal point, we have two options. Hold on to our norms and deny the possible value of another's perspective, or open ourselves to broader perceptions and grow from them. Needless to say, trying to hammer the square peg of our preferences and beliefs into the round hole of reality never works very well. Psychologists have long recognized and thoroughly documented our propensity to tailor data to fit our paradigms, our beliefs about the way things are supposed to be. Most of the time, this is so automatic, we don't even realize we're doing it. In fact, if the data life presents us is too at odds with our cherished norms, our beliefs and habits, we not only can't receive the data, we can't even perceive it. It's as if it didn't even exist. A famous training video I saw illustrates this perfectly. <clears throat> we participants were shown a video and asked to watch very carefully and count how many times a basketball was passed from one person to another. At the end of the video, the trainer asked, how many of you saw the gorilla? None of us had seen a gorilla in the film. But when shown the video again, sure enough, a man in a gorilla suit walked right across in front of the camera and none of us saw it before because we were all pre-programmed by being told to focus on something else. We're all told what to see, think, and even feel, either consciously or unconsciously, by the authority figures in our lives. Our parents, teachers, religious leaders, bosses, politicians, all contribute to the programming that determines much of our behavior and life experience. They contribute to the reinforcement of our paradigms of belief by inculcating in us an expectation of conformity to whatever the dominant program might be. Doctrinal statements of religious or political belief are among our most powerful social paradigms, and we're routinely encouraged to endorse them enthusiastically. It's as if affirming them were a prerequisite for community membership and acceptance. Perhaps we're tempted by the premise that membership has its privileges. In most cases, those who are programming us do so in a sincere conviction that they have our best interests at heart and generally don't even see that their influence is itself a compound mixture of the influences they themselves were subjected to. In some cases, our natural narcissism, however, can become so dominant that we're no longer able to nurture others and instead end up trying to manipulate them to fulfill our own emotional needs. Current slang has coined the term gaslighting to indicate this kind of manipulation, which what to others might appear as objective reality is denied and insistently replaced by alternative facts, resulting in the cultish adulation of the leader and the insidious negation of the follower's experiential reality. Many would argue this is precisely the psychological dynamic behind the inquisition and autocratic political movements there is, in any case, a strong temptation for those who fear heresy to project their fears on others and try to persuade people 
of a danger that doesn't jive with others' reality. Unfortunately, our emotional need for acceptance and belonging can sometimes do us more harm than good, especially if they require us to conform to a norm that denies some basic need or characteristic, whether in us or in our neighbor. Those who've struggled with their faith or with their sexual orientation, for example, have historically often felt compelled to conform to a role that though natural to the majority population, felt abnormal to them. Those who've managed to make peace with both seem to be notably happier than those who have resisted either. This speaks to the paradox that though paradigms can be useful and even necessary, playing the game of dueling paradigms to prove who is better is a fool's errand. No paradigm is truly all-embracing, since by definition the infinite is beyond the confines of any paradigm. Nevertheless, paradigms can point us toward greater truths, and in fact, learning to mind the treasures of the paradigms of others can greatly enrich our appreciation of our own, perhaps even elicit a shift to a more inclusive understanding. Sometimes a specific event or political crisis can contribute significantly to the impetus for greater understanding by making our ignorance of each other so blatant it becomes untenable. I would bet that most Europeans and Americans knew little to nothing about Ukraine until Vladimir Putin decided to try to seize the country to fulfill his imperial delusions. The nightmares unfolding in Ukraine have had a catalytic effect triggering a huge groundswell of human solidarity and compassion for the victims, and a promising unification and expansion of the European Union and the NATO signatories for the common good. They've also been a cautionary tale about the dangers of deceit, delusion, and misinformation, not only in the global community, but for the Russian people themselves. They are being held captive and victimized by their calculated and cultivated ignorance of facts on the ground as a result of Putin's cynical and megalomaniacal exercise of power against an innocent neighbor at his own people's expense. Such wake-up calls could provoke a major paradigm shift away from autocracy and oppression, but that will only happen if we can maintain our humanitarian solidarity beyond the initial drama of the news cycle and prolong our attention span beyond the sound bites and talking points of media commentators and opportunist politicians. Ongoing humanitarian crises in Yemen, Syria, West China, Myanmar, and elsewhere should unite rather than dissipate our focus. For the entire human race is at risk from the boundless greed and cruel narcissism of despots and dictators, oligarchs and corporate robber barons everywhere. We're at an important inflection point at which true exceptionalism could unite us to rise to the challenge and effectively address the enormous crises that threaten our planet. Our indifference, complacency and self-centeredness could condemn us to oblivion but our astonishing ingenuity, resourcefulness, and creativity, and our capacity for compassion could inspire us to rise to the occasion and save us all. Meeting the other face-to-face, -face, 
coming to understand their life experience through their eyes rather than through the judgments of our own perspectives. Recognizing firsthand our shared humanity and the commonality of our basic needs for food, shelter, affection, a sustainable livelihood and supportive community in which to live. All that is a great equalizer. It's easy to hide behind the mask of disapproval when the other is an experiential abstraction, kept at a safe distance from our daily lives and experience. When we meet on common ground, however, the other is given a name and a face and a life story that may have much in common with our own. The other then becomes more real and it becomes much harder to dismiss others and relegate them to some abstract category of disapproval or enmity. I vividly remember attending Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s last Sunday sermon in 1968, just four days before his assassination. Of all the brilliant and eloquent things he said, the one that stuck in my mind is most succinctly summarizing our challenge that day, both then and now, was we must either live as brothers or die as fools. How different the world would be if that kind of exceptionalism and cultural competence became our new norm. If you have questions, feedback, or experiences you'd like to share on the contents of this podcast or the practices described in it, feel free to send them to haveyouevervondered144 at gmail.com. I'd like to be responsive to the public and share it in future episodes. You can always listen again to the chapters of your choice wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure and share them with your friends. I look forward to hearing from you. Ciao.